Welcome to this week's edition of Good Books Radio. Audiobooks.com is the chief underwriter for Good Books Radio, which is produced by UTRGV Media Services for Rio Grande Valley Public Radio. And now, here's your host, Dr. John Cook. Welcome once again to another edition of Good Books Radio. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. And with me today are two distinguished scholars who've written an excellent book. The book is entitled The Inner Level, How More Equal Societies Reduce Stress, Restore Sanity, and improve everyone's well-being. The authors are Richard Wilkinson, who has played a formative role in international research on social determinants of health. He studied economic history at the London School of Economics before training in epidemiology, and is a professor emeritus at the University of Nottingham Medical School and an honorary professor at University College London and University of York. Also is the co-author Kate Pickett, a professor of epidemiology research champion for justice and equality, and deputy director of the Center for Future Health at the University of York. She studied physical anthropology at Cambridge, nutritional sciences at Cornell, and epidemiology at the University of California, Berkeley. And I'm humbled by her credentials. Wilson and Pickett's work, The Spirit Level, was shortlisted for Research Project of the Year in 2009 by Times Higher Education Supplement and was chosen as one of the top ten books of the decade by New Statesman. Together, they founded the Equality Trust, which seeks to promote public understanding of the effects of inequality. And that book, The Spirit Level, was published in 2008. The research began about 2006. In a way, the inner level is kind of a sequel to that research, isn't it? Yes, it is. Uh, It attempts to uh, show more intimately how inequality affects us, not just showing that it leads to worse, worse health and more violence and so on, Uh, but the sort of psychological pathways through which it does that. So, for instance, uh, it's really trying to understand better why so many of us are are stressed and suffer mental illnesses and so on, uh, despite um, modern standards of living being so high. Mm -hmm. Let's let's look a bit at the the social evaluation trap that we're caught in that that causes so much self-doubt and results in, in psychological and sociological problems. Uh, that's more pronounced in uh, income in, uh, nations with income in more unequal countries. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. So we have studies now that look across multiple countries um, and ask people about their experiences of anxiety, about status, and it turns out that more people are worried about their status in more unequal societies, and that's true whether or not they are rich or poor. The effect is strongest at the bottom of society, but even at the very top, people are more anxious about how others judge them, their role, their status relative to other people in more unequal countries. So whether you're seen as uh, attractive, unattractive, people think you're clever or stupid, all those worries. Mm -hmm. And the the impact is often reflected in two different ways. One is self-doubt and the other is delusions of grandeur. Let's talk about those a little bit, please. Well, if you're worried all the time about what people think of you, um, as I say, whether they see you as a successful or failure, stupid or boring or whatever, um, there are two responses. You can either be sort of overcome with low self-esteem, uh, lack of confidence, depression. You can withdraw from social life because it's all such uh, such an ordeal. Or you can respond in the opposite way. 
you can start trying to um, big yourself up in other people's eyes. Um, you can uh, exaggerate your achievements and abilities. You can find ways of bringing them into conversation. Uh, so a, a kind of narcissism uh, also increases alongside uh, depression in, in other people. And you see both those responses more common in more unequal societies. And I was not aware of the uh, impact, uh, how widespread the impact is of, of the mental illnesses like depression and anxiety and, and bipolar disorder. Uh, it, it apparently is, is much more common than, than most people are aware. Yes, I think that's right. I mean, we're starting to see, I think, unprecedented levels of mental illness and distress in our more unequal societies. The, the data for the USA and the UK are very, very similar. Um, you know, about three quarters of us feel um, a high degree of stress, an overwhelming degree of stress. About a fifth of us live with some kind of diagnosed mental illness. And it's particularly epidemic among our young people where we see extremely high levels of self-harm, self-doubt, diagnosed mental health problems, really an epidemic of, of mental lack of well-being. And that's what's so extraordinary, given, given that we live with unparalleled levels of, of comfort and so on. Mm -hmm. That is interesting. The, 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 the wealthier societies, especially when they're unequal, uh, seem to have lost something uh, in terms of a sense of community and, and sharing and generosity. I found it interesting that you cited the one study where the lower class are more pro-social, uh, more generous, uh, more trusting than upper class. Yes, there's some interesting psychological work um, showing that. Um, uh, that more unequal countries, at least um, the rich in more unequal countries, seem to be in many ways more out for themselves, more antisocial, um, shown in all sorts of little um, experiments. So, for instance, do people driving big smart cars uh, give way to uh, others on the road as often as people driving um, older cars? Um, a number of other psychological experiments that suggest that in more unequal societies, the rich become, if you like, self more selfish. But it's more widespread than that as well. We can look across different countries and see that in the more unequal ones, people are less likely to be willing to help their neighbors. They're less willing to talk to somebody who has a mental illness. They lack solidarity. And so that the whole social fabric is disrupted and torn apart by inequality. It's not just the behavior of the rich. And it's, you see as a result, community life declining. People have less to do with their neighbors and people in the um, neighborhood. Let's do a, a very condensed version of the history of equality versus inequality. One of the things that I think not a lot of people are aware about is that for about 95% of human history, we were hunter-gatherers and had more of a a, a tribal uh, sense of society and more sense of a, a sense of community and equality. And then when agriculture emerged, uh, we became more hierarchical. Yes, particularly with the growth of uh, the earliest cities, that, um, the first really class hierarchies, um, often slave societies, that's when uh, major inequality really appears. 
the hunting and gathering societies that cover 90% of the time in which we've been sort of recognizably modern human beings. Um, we lived in these very egalitarian hunting and gathering societies based on gift exchange and food sharing and so on. But if I could add to that, mm -hmm. I think there's two very interesting time trends that are relevant for us in the UK and for, for you in the USA. And one is that long-term historical trend that Richard just mentioned, which shows that we are just as good at living in egalitarian, caring, sharing societies as we are as at coping with, with very unequal ones. But also, if we look in our recent historical past, both your country and ours used to be much more equal in the mid-20th century than they are today. You know, we were as equal then as Sweden is now. So we're not fixed in some historical, cultural net where we can't escape and, and can't think about being more equal. We have been more equal societies and we could be again. Yes, I think it's, it's, it's important to uh, note that from the 1930s to the 1970s in the state, uh, there was there was much more equality. It was a, it was a direct impact of some redistribution of wealth by the Roosevelt administration during the Depression, yes. but also post World War II, uh, there was more opportunity for more people uh, to get ahead in this society. Yes, it's interesting looking at uh, social mobility, how much people move up and down the, the social ladder. Um, you know, the United States has always thought it has much more social mobility, more opportunity uh, than the older European societies. But it looks as if as societies become more unequal, bigger income differences between rich and poor, social mobility slows. Um, and in lots of different ways, uh, class and status become more rigid in the society. Uh, so people are less likely to marry people from another social class. Residential segregation of rich and poor increases and all the problems that are more common at the bottom of the social ladder uh, become more common as income differences uh, grow. And those income differences began to grow again in the 70s. What uh, led to the trend from the 70s to now? I think again. in a way, one's looking at the first the growth of the the labour movement, um, probably also the fear of communism, um, which pushed people like your know, President Roosevelt to introduce the New Deal, um, the power of organised labour, uh, and all that grew until sometime in the 1970s, and then. Uh, from about 1980 onwards, you get the modern rise of inequality, the weakening of unions, the lowering of uh, top tax rates and so on, a change in, in the sort of dominant uh, economic ideology in society. I think it's important to recognize that um, the architects of neoliberal economics truly believed that, you know, if governments followed those policies, they would see unprecedented economic growth, we would have trickle down, everybody would benefit and everybody would be better off. But of course, we're now in a different world. We have the evidence that shows that that didn't happen. It isn't true. And in fact, you need to be very careful of your levels of inequality if you want to foster optimal well-being among your population rather than just creating economies and policies that benefit those at the very top. Mm -hmm. And I was struck by uh, how the education system 
um, helps sustain meritocracy. There were so many uh, studies you cited about how when, when teachers know the social class of their students, it affects their perception, their evaluation of those students. Yes, I think that's, that's very sad. You know, the data show that if students from minority backgrounds, ethnic minority backgrounds, or from lower social classes have their schoolwork marked and assessed by people who don't know them and don't know their background, they receive higher marks than if it's marked by the teachers who do know them. And we don't think that this is due to conscious bias among teachers and educators. It's simply that they are the products of, of the unequal societies they live in um, and, and share those values. And I think what we need in educational training is much more um, attention so that, to these issues so that teachers can reflect on how they um, assess children within their care and their expectations of them. These forces actually are so great that many kids feel that, uh, looking back on it, that their schools were almost engines of social grading, um, and what they learned from school was that they're no good, and really awful effects. And that's in these unequal societies, but I was struck, uh, as an educator, I was so impressed to read about the Finland school system, which uh, is a country with more equality and really strove to uh, in enhance the quality of education in so many ways. That's right. We, we were rather envious of Finland's education system in the UK. <laughs> fin Finland used to score poorly um, on international tests. Um, you know, their kids didn't do so well relative to other countries in Europe. So they decided to do something about it. You know, they had a proper grown-up national conversation about it made all of their schools public, got rid of all private education, raised the status of the teaching profession, paid teachers better, um, and transformed their educational performance. They are now consistently top the league tables for performance in, in European countries. But I think it's important to recognize that although uh, education systems can make all these problems of inequality better or worse, uh, the big engines that uh, really led to the rise in inequality are ch changes in uh, economic policy. The other negative effect that we haven't touched on that is a really big one is climate change. Is the effect on the environment. Yes. Um, there are a lot of interactions between uh, issues to do with inequality and uh, whether or not we can reduce carbon emissions and move towards sustainability. And because inequality increases status competition and consumerism, it becomes a major obstacle to moving towards sustainability. You know, if you live in a more unequal society, you're more likely, uh, as the studies have shown, to spend your money on flashy cars and on uh, uh, clothes that um, make you look uh, wealthy and, you know, have the right labels and so on. Um, it's a powerful pressure on consumption. Um, but uh, because community life is weaker in more unequal societies, people are less active in relation to the common good. Business leaders, surveys show, are less concerned with environmental issues in more unequal societies. People recycle a smaller proportion of uh, their waste materials. A lot of indications uh, that inequality means people are more out for themselves, less concerned with the common good. Mm -hmm. And it, you actually state something that I, I, I want to quote on the air, 
Though ignored by skeptics, the scientific evidence on the consequences of carbon emissions is incontrovertible. But not only that, you also talk about the environmental crisis, the effects of the, that industrialization and that competition in so many other ways, soil erosion, deforestation, water salinization, the systemic effects of insecticides and pesticides and toxic chemicals and, and acidification of the oceans and decline of fish stocks. and uh, it, it, it amounts to a whole lot of scary stuff going on. It, yeah. it really does. You know, when we're thinking about climate change, uh, it's not only global warming. We're not only thinking of rises in temperature. All of our ecological systems are going to be affected. And the World Health Organization um, assesses already that hundreds of thousands of lives have been lost to the effect of climate change. And unless we take action, this is going to be ramped up. We're going to see more and more of this. We'll see more mass migration as people try to escape the consequences of climate change. So we really need to start acting quickly and reducing inequality is one of the key ways in which I think we can um, reduce the barriers towards transforming our economies towards more sustainable and green. There's a strange parallel, if you like, between messing up our social environment, our social relations, and messing up the planet. You know, because these uh, worries about how we're seen and judged, uh, what people think of us, uh, become exacerbated by inequality. We use alcohol and drugs more to, uh, to, to diminish our anxiety levels, to make it easier to relax in other people's company. Um, but the way we're messing up the planet with uh, plastic pollution and uh, more CO2 and everything else, the aerosols that uh, lead to air pollution and we now know do so much health damage, you know, the two things are intimately related. Yeah, and, and, and you, since you mentioned uh, alcohol and drug abuse, let's talk about some of the other addictions that show up in an unequal society more, the shopaholics, workaholics, and so on. That's right. I mean, all of the kinds of ways in, in which we might try to compensate for our feelings of, of inadequacy or our worries about how we're seen, our worries about our status, all of those increase in more unequal societies. So we see more problem alcohol use, we see more um, drug taking, illegal drugs, we see more eating for comfort and therefore higher levels of obesity, we see people shopping excessively um, and consuming status goods more, um, and we see people gambling more, you know, attempting to sort of, I suppose, overcome their low social position in the hierarchy. So all of these things which, you know, can create real um, problems for, for individuals, for their families, for their friends, for their colleagues, all of those are more common in more unequal places. One thing you mentioned that, that uh, struck me is about addiction to, to video games, although we're not really sure that that classifies as an addiction. There certainly is an obsession with video games, but the one video game that struck me ties into the acquisition of goods, and that is that there's a game to teach young girls how to shop. Yeah, I was really shocked when I came across that, actually. I was really horrified and, and, and glad that my own daughter was too old to have ever been engaged in that game. Yeah, um, there are all kinds of, of games that engage young girls in thinking about their appearance and their possessions. Um, so quite, quite destructive, really. I mean, we don't yet have good data for different countries on, on levels of addiction um, 
to video gaming. But certainly the trends look look very worrying. Um, and we do know, you know, of, of countless anecdotes, certainly about people who are able to sort of disengage from their normal life and engage in a fantasy life that makes them feel better about themselves. In a way, all these things, I suppose, we do to allay our anxieties, uh, to take us, our minds off them for a while. But with uh, shopping, of course, that we do to uh, people call shopping um, uh, sort of retail therapy. But uh, if you actually look at the people who, uh, for whom shopping is most important, who get into debt most, the levels of mental illness and so on are much higher. The issues to do with uh, feelings of insecurity, status insecurity, those worries we've talked about of how you're seen and judged, all much higher in those, and they push people into that kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, the, 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 the trends are uh, unsettling, and uh, we talk about shifting foundations later in the book, um, and the, the major elements there include the uncoupling of well-being from economic growth, the environmental crisis, uh, globalization, uh, the unprecedented scale of migration, and um, the pace of technological change. And while we lament that in the good old days, the hunters and gatherers shared their meat, the complexity of the industrial production has returned us to an interdependent kind of society. And so there is hope. Yes, I think there is hope. Um, I think there's increasing recognition of our interdependency, increasing recognition of the importance of our social relationships for our health and well-being, increasing recognition that owning things does not make us happy, that nobody lies there on their deathbed and says they wish they'd spent more time at the office. You know, we all know what's important to us. And worldwide, there's an increasing trend to think beyond gross domestic product, beyond economic growth, and to think about how we create optimal well-being in our populations. And so I think our work is contributing to that worldwide movement of looking for alternative models for our economies and our societies. There are now quite a lot of studies of happiness and uh, life satisfaction and so on. And they show very clearly that it's uh, no longer helped in the rich countries by getting um, uh, richer, still higher levels of consumption. What really makes a difference is the quality of social relations, the number of friends you have, whether you're involved in community life, the quality of your relationships. Uh, and it's to that area we have to turn now if we can, if we're to improve the real quality of human life in our societies. We've got to the end of what rising uh, GNP per capita can do for us. Yes, and I, I uh, have encountered some of those studies through the years that, that indicated the happiness studies that indicate Scandinavia's, Scandinavian score really well for the most part, although there's uh, rising inequality in Sweden, I think, and so that's changing a little bit there. Indeed. Yes, I mean, if we look at the Scandinavian countries in general, they score very well on all measures of, of sort of health and social functioning. But Sweden, although still much more equal than either the UK or the USA, has the fastest growing inequality in the OECD. And we've seen their levels of child and young people's well-being in particular decline over the past decade, exactly as we would predict, given their growing inequality. 
and the trend in politics for the upcoming presidential election, I, I didn't get a chance to talk about narcissism trumping leadership and our Trump, but uh, the 2020 election is, uh, there are a number of candidates emerging who are democratic socialists, and it makes me think of redistribution of wealth. Uh, but you have a plan for a better world that doesn't really require redistribution of wealth. So let's talk about the solution here. Well, we think the long-term solution is is less through redistribution of income. Uh, that's a, a short-term way of dealing with things, but more important is to embed greater equality more deeply in our societies through employee representation on company boards, not just token representation, and uh, also growing the sector of the economy of uh, employee-owned companies, mutuals, um, cooperatives and so on. Those more democratic models uh, seem to be nicer places to work. Um, people say that uh, an employee buyout of a company turns a company from being a piece of property into a community. Um, the studies also suggest that they have higher productivity. Uh, incidentally, the companies in which uh, the CEOs are, are paid most seem to do slightly less well, even in terms of shareholder returns, than companies where the CEOs are not paid so much. Mm -hmm. And it, uh, I, I want to mention a book that, that we uh, had an interview with the author, Nicholas Freudenberg, uh, on our program, Lethal But Legal, the impact of yes. those major companies and what uh, the effect it has on the public health. Yes, I think there are worries about the uh, sort of antisocial effects of the market. And Nicholas Freudenberg argues that the main um, problems for public health are really the ones created by uh, companies producing alcohol, sugar, um, tobacco, um, guns, and so on. Um, and that, uh, in a way, we were preyed on by big corporations. Mm -hmm. But if we're going to create this greater society, and part of the solution does seem to me uh, logical that you talk about employee empowerment uh, in, in corporations and uh, less of a disparity between executives and workers, um, if we can manage to gain greater equality, what, what are the benefits of that? Oh, they're so widespread. Population health would improve. It's likely life expectancy would improve. Mortality rates would drop. All kinds of chronic illnesses would Loosen, loosen their grip on us. We would have lower levels of obesity, much lower levels of mental illness, lower levels of violent crime, less imprisonment, more social cohesion. One of the things we see really clearly is that the more unequal and more equal societies, there's a good deal of reciprocity. People are involved with each other, uh, but with growing inequality, levels of trust decline, community life weakens. Um, and you see levels of violence as measured by homicide rates going up. And if you look at really unequal societies, places more unequal than Britain or the United States, countries like um, Mexico and South Africa, people have gone a stage further. They're actually f afraid of each other. They barricade their houses with bars on windows and doors and round their yards and so on. Um, spending a lot of money on security of different kinds. You know, it's expensive to have an unequal country. Um, there are some American states that have spent more on prisons 
high prison populations than on higher education. You know, you can't get away with um, not spending, not having any public expenditure. It's a matter of whether you spend it on good things or bad things. Yes, and it, 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 I see some of those effects because I'm now in Mexico. And uh, But there's a, a point you make late in the book, a change on the scale needed can only be achieved if large numbers of people commit themselves to achieving it. So I'm hoping that our listeners will share what you have provided for us in the inner level. We've been talking with Dr. Richard Wilkinson and Dr. Kate Pickett. The book is about equal societies reducing stress and restoring sanity. I'm your host, Dr. John Cook. I thank you for listening. If you don't hear our regularly scheduled broadcast, you can also catch us on YouTube at our channel, which is Good Books Radio, Strong and Cook. Thanks for listening. Make it a great day.